Hey, thanks for watching. I'm going to take a question today from Mike. Uh, hello, Pastor. My wife and I had the pleasure of a short period of time at Calvary Chapel, Franklin. We love you guys. My wife listens all the time. Well, thank you. It's very kind of you, and it's good that you could be with us for a little bit, and hopefully you're doing well now. Um, we have a question. Do you believe we're celebrating the marriage supper during the tribulation and that the tribulation saints won't be at the marriage supper of the Lamb? How do we know there will even be tribulation saints? I was trying to explain how I felt the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus or the second coming were different events. And I was told all pre-tribbers preach. Um, okay, this one's a little um, tough to... Um, okay, I was told that all pre-tribbers uh, preach and believe that... Uh, Okay, that the wedding feast happens after the rapture. I think that's what you're asking, Mike. Um, thanks for your time. Blessings. Blessings to you as well. Thanks for asking those questions. Tell you what, why don't we open to Revelation chapter 19, and let's read the passage that has to do with the marriage supper, and then we'll talk a little bit about where it fits in. Um, now, after these things, this is chapter 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. By the way, this is after the collapse of Babylon, the system here that has really kind of ensnared the whole earth in terms of business and religion and all this kind of thing. Um, uh, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of, many, uh, of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These things uh, are these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy." So we see here the introduction of this idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I shouldn't say the introduction because there are hints of this throughout the Gospels and such, um, but here we see it plainly spoken about. Now there are some terms that are used in terms of uh, in in regard to understanding when this fits into things. Uh, for example, uh, much of the language that we just read here in chapter nineteen, the first uh, what ten verses, eleven verses, uh, ten verses, um, speaks about the fall of Babylon. John says, after these things. And so there seems to be a pretty clear placement of when this takes place uh, in, in regard to the tribulation period. Now, this is also placed before the return of Christ, which happens in chapter 19, verse 11, when he sees heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then he goes forth with the armies of heaven and he ultimately casts down the Antichrist, the false prophet, destroys all of the armies that have come against uh, his people, and then ultimately try to come against him at his return. And so it does seem pretty clear that the marriage supper of the Lamb is, is placed pretty solidly at the end of the tribulation period, but before the return of Christ. Now, let me throw a couple of caveats in here that are possible caveats. 
Um, the idea that, uh, that the book of Revelation is intended to be seen entirely linear, in entirely linear fashion. In other words, everything that we read happens in marked order as we read it, uh, can be challenged pretty well and has been. Uh, there's, as a matter of fact, uh, you'll often see this when you look at any, um, uh, any of the charts that are put together on, um, you know, the, the layout of Revelation and that you'll often see judgments overlapping each other and different things like that. So, uh, it is possible that what John sees here, he sees and takes in this information in a way that is just difficult to convey in anything other than a linear fashion, because that's just how we exist in time and space. But it may very well be that he saw a number of these things happening simultaneously, but he, he writes them out. In chapter 19, however, he does he does seem to sort of draw a division marker by saying, after these things, I heard a loud voice. In other words, there seems to be this, I saw this happening, and then I saw this. It does appear, if we're going to read the text pretty straightforwardly, and I, and this is where I, this is how I take it, that, um, that this event of the marriage supper happens, uh, following the rejoicing over the fall of Babylon and all this kind of thing. But it also then happens, uh, prior again, as we read it here in Revelation 19, it happens prior um, to the return of Christ, it would appear. And so that being said, if that is in fact the case, and that is how I see that, uh, I will respect the fact that people may place the marriage supper at different points. Uh, however, I don't know that we necessarily have to put the marriage supper at a different point. Uh, one of the reasons why it is often put at a different point is because there is this question of who's involved in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I think chapter 19 kind of says that uh, in verse uh, 7. It tells us that the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Uh, and it goes on to speak about them in, in fine linen and all this kind of thing. Um, the bride of Christ, okay, the, the Lamb's wife, uh, this is the church. We see this uh, in regard to, uh, or described in places like Ephesians uh, chapter 5. If you want to turn there real quick, there's an allusion to this idea. Um, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, of course, we know this section as, as pertaining to Paul's instruction in regard to marriage. But notice what he says here when he talks about, uh, in verse 31 and 32, uh, or verse 30, for we are all members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Then nevertheless, let each one of you in particular love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects the husband. So verses 30 through 32, really, kind of point out the fact that marriage is intended to be a model of another relationship, and that is Christ and the body of Christ. So the Lamb's wife is really not an ambiguous idea, the idea of those who belong to Christ in the church age. The church age has a definitive ending point, and that would be the point of the rapture. Um, we have talked recently in a couple of videos in regard to the idea of salvation for those after the rapture. Can people be saved after the rapture of the church? Or if I just had this discussion with uh, with some friends yesterday morning again. And so um, it's, a, it's a, a hot topic right now, I guess. And so um, the short answer is yes, I think people can be saved after the rapture. There is a concern that the strong delusion that the Lord sends upon the world uh, after the departure of the church, does that preclude people from getting saved? Well, it would not appear so because, again, many won't come to faith. I think in, in um, 
Second Thessalonians 2, um, God is, because they did not love the truth, he is essentially giving them over to the delusion that they are ready to embrace. Uh, these are not people that are going to believe the truth and such, and so God just essentially firms up their position with a strong delusion that they would believe the lie. However, does that mean everybody, um, after the, uh, the restrainer is taken out of the way, does that mean everybody after that point has rejected the gospel so thoroughly that they will not come to faith? That doesn't appear to be the case because we do see uh, on a number of occasions throughout the book of Revelation after the church is gone. uh, By the way, I should insert here that I I believe the church is gone by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 1, the opening of the first seal. Uh, I think the end of the church really is kind of described at the end of chapter 3. That's the last time we really see the church until um, chapter 19, verse 11, when Christ returns with the armies of heaven. And as Paul says in Colossians, as we see elsewhere, the saints come with. Uh, Jude tells us this and, and elsewhere. So, um, uh, so, so that once the church is gone by by Revelation six verse one, again, people dispute that when 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 the rapture will happen or when the church will be gone. I should say by. I think it's at that early point rather than later. Um, but once the church is gone, does that mean that nobody will get saved after that? No, because clearly many in Israel get saved. Uh, they look upon him when they've pierced, they mourn, and then ultimately they, they um, come to believe. Uh, it's, if if, if uh, Romans 11, uh, is it 25, uh, where Paul said, or 26, when Paul says um, that blindness has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. If, in fact, that is a reference to the idea of the last of the Gentiles getting saved and the church age ends, then... The implication is that blindness is lifted from Israel, and they ultimately then, uh, many of whom, as Paul goes on to say, Israel will be saved. And so, um, so we know that there, if, if that in fact speaks to this period of time, then we know that there will be some who get saved afterward. So, having said all that, let me get more specifically to some of these questions. Um, will we uh, su- celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb during the tribulation? I think so. I think based on where it's placed in Revelation 19, the tribulation is still happening in the sense that Christ has not returned yet, um, it would appear that that would, by definition, fall into the period of time known as the tribulation. Now, the tribulation saints, as we refer to here, um, would not be part of that. Those who come to faith during the tribulation period, therefore, would not be part of that because they are uh, alive during the tribulation here. Um, now, there are those who will die during the tribulation period, uh, and that's a bit of a mystery. You know, would they... Um, um, would they participate or not? I think, strictly speaking, maybe not. Uh, I won't dig my heels in on that one, but it would seem to follow that if those who came to Christ after the rapture are not specifically, technically speaking, the body of Christ, then that would be they would be part of a different category that, again, falls into what we call tribulation saints. Uh, the Bible never calls them tribulation saints. It's just that we call them that. We uh, The term emerged at one point, and we call them that simply to uh, allow us to distinguish between different groups that exist during the last days. You have, of course, the unbelieving world. Uh, You have Israel, who is unbelieving until they uh, go into the tribulation period, nationally speaking, um, and they are preserved through the tribulation period. You have, uh, of course, the saints uh, who came to Christ during the church age, who are raptured away before the tribulation. Uh, And then you have those who are both Jew and Gentile during the tribulation period who come to faith. They are, you know, Gentiles who come to faith are not Israel. They're still distinct in terms of ethnicity in that, but they are part of this conglomeration of people who do get saved 
during the tribulation period. So in order to just, in a succinct way, describe who we're referring to when we talk about this particular group of people, we utilize terms like tribulation saints. Other terms may exist as well. Again, it's not a, it's not a term in scripture per se. It's just a way to distinguish and differentiate this group from others uh, during that period of time. So will they participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think they do because they're not technically uh, part of the bride of Christ for whom the marriage supper of the Lamb or among whom the marriage supper of the Lamb is is, is put together for. Um, so uh, in regard to the idea of the rapture and the second coming being separate events, uh, we have spoken often to that one over the years too. Uh, that one should be, um, that one's not a hard one, I should say, to, uh, to, to differentiate. And it sounds like, uh, Mike, you've actually done that pretty well in your conversations. Um, in, uh, or at least you've certainly made the attempt to help people understand the differentiation between those two things. Uh, that's another hot topic among Christendom. There, there are those that don't believe in a rapture. Uh, they believe that the second coming is the only next coming of Christ. Um, but again, in places like First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul uses this terminology, harpazo. Uh, matter of fact, let's turn to and read it. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, the language is very, very clear. There's a there's clearly different kind of language used to describe uh, this event uh, as distinct from the second coming. Um, verse, uh, let's say this verse 15, let's start here. For this, we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, those who have died for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's an important point in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, cover one another with these words. So Paul is saying, look, I'm giving you to this by word from the Lord. In other words, I'm telling you something directly received by revelation from God. Um, the second coming certainly is that as well. It's a revelation from God, but it's all over the scripture. The idea of coming in judgment and all that kind of stuff um, and the kingdom age to follow and that kind of thing. That's that's all over scripture. It would appear that Paul is saying, look, I'm telling you something here that God has told me to tell you. Uh, in, in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he calls it a mystery, something that had not previously been understood. Not necessarily that there hadn't been hints of it or, or, or bits of information, but it's certainly not been fully understood uh, until Paul explained it. And this is one of those, uh, this is in, in, in regard to 1 Corinthians 15, I think he's talking about the same event in these two passages. Here in verse 17, he talks about the idea of being caught up together with them, with those who have died in Christ. Notice he says the dead in Christ will rise first. There is some debate as to whether that specifically speaks of just the church age or whether all of those who have died in faith looking forward to Christ may be included in that number. I will grant that that's a fair debate. Um, you know, it does speak to issues like, you know, when do the Old Testament saints get their glorified bodies and all that kind of thing. Um, that's all part of that discussion. Um, I, I tend to think, again, based on various eschatological distinctions in that, I tend to think that when Paul says those who have died in Christ would refer to the church age, would refer to church age believers. Um, and then those believers, to continue, are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The second coming clearly is his coming to earth to set foot on the earth on the Mount of Olives. As a matter of fact, as Zechariah tells us, the mountain splits. Uh, he returns. Revelation again, 19. He's come to do battle with the, uh, with all of the unbelieving world. He's come against his people and then against him. 
Uh, of course, he's they're easily and quickly dispatched. You know, um, we see this happen in Revelation 19. We see this alluded to in uh, Psalm 2 and, and such. And so um, there's, there's a, dif- a distinction between the return to earth as opposed to the idea of being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It's, uh, it's, it's, if I've often said, if, cha- if, if verse 17 wasn't there, if he never said verse 17, then we probably would all be in agreement there's just the second coming. Um, because much of what is spoken about could pertain to that. But there is this passage here that he, he draws a distinction. Again, there seems to be this kind of alluding to the idea or this uh, implying of the idea that God has told him this and he's telling them, which to me kind of sounds like he's differentiating it as well. Because again, the second coming is is not a mystery to anybody at this point. And so uh, it's, it's not something that they would not have been aware of, but he seems to be introducing something here that that is not as well known. And so uh, at least that seems to be, I, again, I won't I don't want to be subjectively making that point as if I know that for sure, but it does seem to be that way, to me at least. Uh, but anyway, the, the the wording itself, the the language there itself, is very clearly describing a different kind of event from the second coming. Uh, and of course, as as somebody who's uh, who believes in the pre-tribulation rapture, um, this this is part of the reason why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, uh, this is one of the passages that lends itself to the overall discussion. Um, and a pre-trib rapture, by the way, uh, is is not. Uh, m- most of us love the pre-trib rapture view because it's extremely hopeful. We could be out of here before we finish recording this post. Um, but we ought not to confuse our hope in a pre-trib rapture with the underpinnings as to why we hold to a pre-trib rapture. Um, it is not held to, at least it should not just be held to, just because it's hopeful. Man, we just want to get out of all the hard times. The rapture is not about getting out of hard times. Jesus said that in this world we will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The believer should expect persecution, Paul would tell Timothy, right? Those, all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Uh, we should expect to experience agitation, difficulty, hardship, persecution. Uh, there is no promise for believers to get out of difficulty. The preacher rapture holds that the reason why the the rapture happens prior to the 70th week of Daniel or prior to God's dealing with Israel and during that time bringing judgment on the earth is because we are not appointed to wrath, as Paul would say later on here in 1 Thessalonians. That is something, and actually the beginning of 1 Thessalonians and also um, in chapter 5. So we're not appointed to wrath. So if the wrath of God begins, and this is why we're... Uh, we consider um, um, the beginning of judgment to be an important point. Uh, I would hold Revelation 6, verse 1, when Christ breaks the seal and and the Antichrist is set forth. Um, There are those that hold uh, an idea that it's later than that, maybe the sixth seal uh, and such. And so, um, but that's an important distinction to make. It's not something that we need to be fighting viciously over. It's not something that we need to be uh, saying that the other camps believing something from hell. It's just we have differing views based on a good faith study of the scripture. But those distinctions do matter in terms of our eschatology. And so it's worth discussing and even debating uh, in order to understand these things as best we can. But that being said, the pre-trib rapture is a view that is held not only because it's hopeful. It is very hopeful. Matter of fact, it's 
it's it's arguably the most hopeful of any position you could hold on this is that you know Christ could come imminently at any time to snatch away his bride much like we see in the Jewish wedding feast where he goes to prepare a place for his bride when the father says it's ready go get her he comes and gets her she is waiting uh patiently, but waiting with great anticipation, ready at a moment's notice when he shows up, she wants to go and be with him. It's hopeful. The, the, the perspective is hopeful because what bride doesn't every day clamor to be with her bridegroom? So, um, and, and the fact that he could come at any time based on those kinds of analogies that Jesus himself uses in places like John 14. Um, but we don't hold the view just because it's hopeful. We hold the view because it seems to best line up scripturally with the unfolding of eschatology. Uh, I would hold that, I would maintain that point. And so that's why I hold the view, not because I just want to get out of a difficult life. My life's not as difficult as it could be, for sure. So it'd be kind of lame for me just to feel like life's too tough for me. We all have difficulties, but I'm not like, you know, in some third world country, starving and all that kind of thing and and all that. I'm not in any kind of condition like that. So it's hopeful for me, but it's it's not like I'm so desperate to get out of here, I can't live another day. I don't hold the view because I'm in that condition. I hold the view because it, it ultimately, in my view, lines up best with the scriptural um, uh, layout of eschatology. So, um, so way, like in the, and the reason I go through all that is because in the question, there's sort of this, you know, kind of mindset that, oh, all pre-tribbers, this, whatever. There's a tendency to just sort of throw people into a category and then try to sort of marginalize them. All of the different perspectives on when Christ will come for his bride have merit to them. Otherwise, nobody would hold them. Uh, I mean, it's possible that points could be misunderstood or scriptures might be taken out of context or something like that. Or maybe the overall isn't really in view when you're formulating your view. But to sort of just try to dismiss a a particular perspective because you don't agree with it, I think is very immature. I I don't just dismiss out of hand views that I completely disagree with. Uh, um, It's like, well, you're not stupid. You hold this view because there's there's reasons for it, right? So, but but, but again, all of that kind of to bring up the point that these are good discussions to have. These are good, healthy, biblical, uh, scriptural kinds of discussions to have uh, and to have in love uh, and, and to discuss these things with a desire to grow in knowledge, to approach them humbly, uh, to consider points and counterpoints and all that kind of thing, and then to arrive at the view uh, that you think best lines up scripturally. And so, um, so let me see if I got all the questions here. Uh, I believe... I believe we got them all. Hopefully I didn't miss anything, Mike, but thanks for asking the questions. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to get your uh, your comment and to, to take a stab at it. So hopefully you found this helpful. And uh, again, I would strongly encourage you to take time to, to consider the perspective that you hold in regard to the time of Christ coming for his bride, whether or not he is coming for his bride prior to the second coming or not. You know, there's, a, again, a number of, of, of perspectives. Again, I hold a pre-trib view. And, uh, and I'd encourage you to consider that among the various perspectives that you can study and uh, to give each a fair shake. So that being said, um, hopefully whatever perspective you hold, you are ready and desiring to see the Lord, that you are uh, clamoring to be with Jesus. There's nothing overtly spiritual about saying, no, Lord, not yet. I'm going to try and save the lost first. We all ought to be about that. And of course, no one cares for the lost more than Jesus does. But yet nonetheless, he longs to be with his bride. Remember, it's an exciting prospect, the idea of being with the Lord. And so um, so there we can live in, in a balance of those two um, seemingly different sides of the same coin. So, But thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And uh, if you have any thoughts or questions, you can always share them in the comments section on our YouTube channel. Or if you want to email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com, you can do that 
as well. So thank you so much for uh, your questions, Mike. And I look forward to answering a bunch of others that I've got here all listed here. I'm trying to get to at some point or another. So, all right. Well, Father, thank you for your goodness toward us, your grace that is given in abundance. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that we have a future that is certain uh, in the heavens, that you have um, that you have promised, that you've put together, that you are leading us toward. And Father, however these things pan out, we thank you that at the end of the road, we find ourselves in the, uh, uh, in the, in the view of, in the presence of our Savior. We thank you for that. And uh, we do pray that in the time between now and then, whatever comes, and we know there will be hard times, there will be tribulation, there will be persecution, there will be hard times that all believers will have to endure to some degree or another. We just pray that, Father, you give us the fortitude uh, to stand firm, um, even among those uh, saints that have come before, that have uh, been heroes of our faith, like in Hebrews 11 and elsewhere, we see those who, um, who uh, uh, like Abraham, uh, looked forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. Help us, Lord, to, to not plant our tent posts too firmly in this ground, knowing that ultimately we were made for another world entirely. So thank you, Father. We look forward to that, and we pray that you'd use us in your purposes to reach the lost between now and that time. Father, we know that we can plant and we can even water. It is only the Holy Spirit who ultimately gives increase. And so uh, we thank you for letting us be part of that process. We pray that you would employ us toward that. Thank you, Father. We praise you, we bless you, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.